Hey guys, before we dive into this week's episode, I've got a little offer for you. This year I launched my online studio, Mindful Moment, and I'd love for you to prioritize your own well-being and come and have a free trial. You'll get unlimited 24-hour access to my growing library of meditations, mindfulness techniques, breathwork and movement sessions, yoga classes, sound healing recordings, and more. Whether you've got two minutes or a full day, and whether you want to improve your sleep, feel calmer, or let go of damaging thought patterns, there are sessions there to support you. All from the comfort of your own home on your own timetable. Go to lilysilverton.com forward slash mindful hyphen moment to start your free seven day trial today. I just kind of wish people would say, hey, look, here's me in a bikini. I look great and I want you to see it. That's so human, you know? I've had I've had times when someone's taken a beautiful photo of me and I'll, I'll, I'll actually find myself thinking, hmm, should I go find a quote? Shall I re- reverse engineer this? Shall I make this like, oh, I look happy and I want to help people to be happy. So maybe I'm going to say that this is, ha-. and then I kind of think, sure, just put it up and say, don't I look nice? I want you to see, because it's kind of, you know, I just want you to see how nice I look. <laughs> and uh, I just feel like there's a, there's a space for that. Welcome to Priorities, the podcast about the things in life that really matter. I'm your host, journalist and coach, Lily Silverton. And each week, along with a roster of incredible guests, I'll be exploring how priorities inform and transform our lives, sharing mindset tips, strategies, and inspiration to help you prioritize your own life. We'll be covering what we think is important and unimportant, what we'd like to work on more, and the moments that changed our priorities and lives forever. I hope you enjoy. My guest today is award-winning behavioral change specialist and author, Shiru Azadi. Across her clinical work and two best-selling books, the Kindness Method, and The Last Diet. Shiru provides simple, evidence-based strategies for habit change and personal development. A regular speaker and expert voice, she's been featured on BBC Radio 1, The Telegraph, Red Magazine, The Pool, and Psychologies Magazine, among many others. And in addition to her private practice, she is a support group facilitator and therapist at Amy's House, a recovery house for women set up by the Amy Winehouse Foundation. Welcome, Shiru. Thank you. Thanks for having me. That's so lovely to have you on here. So where are we? We're Tuesday morning. Do you have a bit of a routine in the mornings? My routine's been changing actually recently because I've, I've changed where I, where I live and it's amazing the associations you have like different parts of your home and what you do in different parts. But I like to write in the morning if I can. I tend to be one of those people who wakes up with a million thoughts and random, random anxieties that have come out of out of nowhere and so I like to write I drink coffee in the morning um and I've just started running so I'm almost apprehensive to tell you about this in case by the time it comes out I've stopped (laughs) but I've just started running and I'm really liking it and I'm noticing myself first thing in the morning wanting to go for like a very quick run um I feel like it it resets me um so yeah little bits and little little bits and pieces. I used to do a sort of journaling thing where I would project um, to the end of the day and think about how I wanted to feel and the tests that might come along and how I would, I would respond. But now I actually just do that naturally in my head, which is, has been a lovely shift to notice. That sounds great. So how, if someone wanted to do that, who's listening, or if I wanted to do that, what would, what would we do? What you would do is just draw a line down the middle of a page. I tend to keep a notebook by the kettle because I know I'm going there in the morning and there's going to be a couple of minutes while coffee's happening. Um, And I just kind of write on one side what's likely to test me today or what's likely to make me want to procrastinate. And then on the other side, I write what I'm going to do if and when it happens. And it's extraordinary how just preempting it can help you to have that moment of not falling into the automatic reaction and saying, I guess this would happen. Um, And seeing it as an opportunity to try a new response so say for example if I get um an email that I'm not delighted about sometimes that can lend itself to me wanting to write back really hastily or something and that for me is something that I always want to work on that not to treat everything like an emergency um and so if I'm expecting that email I'll think okay well I'll probably get an email at one or so and if it's not what I want to hear then I'm probably going to tell myself that there's no point doing the next thing and or I should reply immediately or I should compromise on my boundaries on my price or whatever and I have made a and I'm I'm deciding right now that if and when that happens I am going to try a new response um and it really helps 
This is what's so great to hear, right? Because you're an expert behavioral change specialist. You've done it for so many years. And yet, of course, you still have to do it yourself. Yeah, we're all starting from different places too. There'll be people who read my book who will be like way ahead of me. Um, and I think that's the thing to kind of remember is that we all, yeah, we all have different baselines. I mean, I've, you know, no less than transformed compared to where I was before. But for, for example, there'll be some people who, for whom anxiety or overthinking or ruminating or second guessing themselves was just never a thing they needed to work on or wanted to work on anyway. Mm-hmm. So I think we all have our own little um, areas that, that that we're working on. It's all about progress from your own baseline, I think. Yeah, absolutely. All right, let's start with your with one of your priorities that you sent over. So since you talked about running and we're kind of into that vibe already, let's talk about what was your second priority, which was self-care mental health, including counselling and exercise. So can you expand that a little bit? Yeah, I used to assume, I used to behave as though the things that I did for myself that no one else directly benefited from were things that could take a backseat if other priorities came in. And And I've turned that on its head. And now there are certain things that I will just, when you ask me, what are your priorities? I thought to myself, what are the things that I will not compromise for, that I will not let other people's um, priorities or needs get in the way of of me addressing and prioritizing? And yeah, one of them is definitely um, counseling. You know, as as a practitioner myself, I think it's responsible for me to be talking to someone about stuff that comes up for me um, through those conversations. But also just having you know, it's a luxury, but having that space where I can sit and reflect on my week and how I, how I feel I could have done it better, what it brought up for me, reflecting on how different things are for me now than a year ago, etc. So that's really important. And exercise, you know, it just has that shift of making exercise about my mental health and noticing the difference when it comes to things like anxiety um, has 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 made it so it's impossible for me to pretend that it's not really really important um so any movement has just become integral to my day-to-day well-being and I and I will prioritize it but if you told me a few years ago that I'd say to let's say friends wanted to go out for cocktails and I'd say oh no first I need to go do a spin class or something I mean (laughs) I would never have believed you and now I know that they're going to get a better version of me um whether they know it or not and I'm going to be um, I'm going to be calmer. I'm going to feel more positive. I'm going to have more perspective and all of those things benefit every aspect of my life. How so I don't that, compromise. So you don't compromise on that. Mm. How did that shift occur to you? So you say it's just been a couple of years. When I wrote the first book, I noticed that I had a lot of, you know, natural self-doubt and I, I, I started going to spin classes at the time. And for some reason, I noticed that after a spin class, I'd come away thinking, I've got this. There's a reason that I've been, you know, that the people who know what they're talking about have chosen me for this job. And there's a reason that I'm doing well. And yet when I wasn't exercising, I noticed that I was, my anxiety levels were a lot higher. I was far more inclined to focus on the negatives and the risks and what about the reviews? And it just helped to shift my perspective. And it was the only thing that I had found at that point that kind of got me out of my head. Um, and I was getting really good ideas. And so all of a sudden, because my entire life, I had thought that up to that point, exercise was about controlling my weight or changing my body. And when I saw what it was doing, specifically in the context of writing a book for me and this huge pressure of doing something that I was doing in complete isolation, I saw that it was helping me notice what I was so grateful and excited about um, and what I was great at, as opposed to noticing the other legitimate stuff, you know, like it could go wrong and all of that stuff. Um, I just seemed to focus more on the potential. And that seemed to come as a direct result of the exercise. Um, And so I just kept wanting more of that, that perspective shift. And sometimes I'd I'd wake up in the morning and I'd think it, I would, I would think, oh, I bet I'm going to start doubting myself. And then I bet after I do a bit of exercise, I'm going to all of a sudden be flooded with all the reasons why this is an amazing thing. Um, And so that it, it helped me to, to do that. And that was absolutely 
um, priceless because it turned the process of writing the book into an exciting, uh, I don't like to use the word journey, (laughs) an exciting process. (laughs) Yeah, I'm allergic to the word journey. (laughs) Yeah, it's not one that I uh, warm to particularly, let's say. (laughs) And that's really the most sustainable approach, right, to anything. So rather than an end goal of weight loss or whatever it is, you're working with what makes you feel really good. And so paying attention to that day to day and being responsive to it. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that was a huge shift for me is being able to trust my body and being able to kind of know that my body was telling me what was working for me and what wasn't, as opposed to always handing myself over to an expert or a guru or someone telling me like, this should feel good. This shouldn't feel good. This food should make you feel like this. This food shouldn't da da da. Um, uh, I just kind of gave myself permission to trust myself and how I was feeling and what was right for me and provided it wasn't harming me or anyone else to kind of go with it for a while. And it turned out to be um, the right way. And I haven't really looked back. So simple and yet so powerful. Thank you. (laughs) Um, So do you like those spin classes where they shout enthusiastically at you from the front and there's ladies? Yes, I do. Yes, I'm a a signed up member of that cult. (laughs) Don't at me. Do you know what? I never thought I would be. So much time makes a hypocrite of everyone. Honestly, I never thought I would be. So many of the things I do now, I just think, oh my God, if you told me I would be cringing at myself. Um, but yeah, totally. I'm totally up for that. Dark room, yell at me. Um, yell at me, but yell good stuff, yell positive stuff. I'm really not into the whole boot camp vibe. I just don't think it helps. It just makes me want to cry and run away. And um I never want to go back. Whereas when it's um affirmative, yeah, I'm really, I'm really quite up for that stuff. I'm not gonna lie. Yeah, me too. Absolutely love it. I'm looking forward to getting back into it. Me too. At some point soon. So how would you define self-care? Because obviously it's quite a weird one. Um, in the what how what do people associate with it? What does self-care mean to you? I assume it's not just a bubble bath. No, it's so funny you say that because I was just about to say, ugh, if one more person says having a bath. Mm-hmm. Um, no, it's not that. In fact, in fact, if I'm perfectly honest, a lot of the self-care that I do involves discomfort. It involves things like, you know, I, I have quite codependent tendencies. Um, and sometimes I have to sit in the discomfort of someone telling me something I didn't like or trying not to overly please someone or um, trying not to, you know, to sit in the discomfort of conflict and things like that, or someone, um, not wanting to work with me, or these are the, this is the sort of self-care, the boundaries, um, and the protecting myself and the letting myself see that things will be okay. If I stand my ground and, you know, have an opinion that someone else doesn't agree with, because I know that I have the capacity to win people over and like stopping myself to doing that has been a huge lesson in in self-care for me. And um, so, yeah, boundaries and that codependency stuff um, is, is that's probably one of the biggest pieces of self-care that I do, which isn't having a bath. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I guess also being essentially a freelancer, running your own, running your own company, there is so much of that there are so many opportunities for that kind of rejection mm. and the energy that's needed to put yourself out there and pursue all of your many endeavors, whether it's sort of the speaking engagements or the um, sort of practice work that you do, consultant work, coaching, writing, etc., and managing all of those mm. simultaneously. You've got to get pretty, uh, pretty on top of it I would imagine yeah absolutely and I think you kind of have to know what know what you're giving and know that there will always be a person on each side of the spectrum there'll be someone who told who thinks for example that you're really underpriced and then someone who thinks that you're really overpriced and actually individuals not not as much but like working with companies for example you work with one company because this whole wellness or whatever industry we're in is relatively new right so we're all kind of setting a precedent and 
you either see that as like, wow, we're the first wave of people being able to set a precedent here and tell other women, especially like you can charge more and all of this stuff. And then on the other hand, some massive company will tell you that they don't have much of a budget and you'll kind of think, oh gosh, what does that mean about me? And this constant back and forth with the self-doubt stuff. Yeah. You have to know who you are and what you're offering and that it's of value. Um, and of course I've had the luxury of having, you know, people feedback on a book and this sort of mainstream everyday validation, which helps of course, but not as much as you'd think, not as much as doing the work on yourself and kind of thinking, this is what I'm offering and it's of value and it works and it's for some people and not for other people. And realizing that invariably as you grow, there will be a proportion of people who aren't coming with you and that's okay too. And I think remembering stuff like that really is a, um, an example of self-care too and not kind of going with the wind and letting other people define who you are based on an email. I think also not doing things on other people's agendas has been a huge realization for me too. Like when I first started in this industry, I felt so lucky to be here that if someone said, I want this by the end of the day, I would just assume that that's what you had to do or else I would lose that opportunity. And then I, and then I started realizing, you know what, successful people are not defined by one or two or 10 opportunities. They will keep coming and you don't need to be working on other people's agendas. And actually when you get brave enough to push back, nine out of 10 times, the other person will be like, you're absolutely right. Yeah. Here's a few more days. Um, so that's also been, you know, just because someone else wants to treat it like an emergency and also realizing some people are really good at that. And I used to resent it. And now I kind of admire them. I want to be like them. They'll be like, Oh, I just wanted to, a cheeky ask. And, um, they're really good at that, especially journalists. If I may, I was about to say, I think <laughs> I saw a tweet the other day that said, journalists will say, Hey, I need this in half an hour. And then they will also say, I'm sorry, I haven't been in touch for three months. <laughs> and it's just, um, you know, you have to kind of remember that if those opportunities are coming now, they will continue to come and you don't have to work on other people's agendas. Um, yeah, it's a very common, um, <laughs> approach. And also to be fair to journalists, uh, it's generally coming from above. So from editors saying this needs to be done right now but then the piece gets pushed back a month or whatever it is, or two months. Yeah, you can tell that. And actually, I think there's a lot of transparency there too, which I love. Um, working with journalists as much as I do, there's always like, I love that regardless of how urgent things are, I guess because you're, you're great writers, there's a, there's a zoom out where you'll be given a sort of landscape of things. Like, this is what I have to hand it in by. This is what it needs to be checked by. This is the pressure I'm being put under. And all of a sudden, everything changes, you know. Um, so that, that always helps enormously. And actually that's, that's the lesson that I've learned when I'm asking other people for stuff. This is, you know, to say, I don't just want this ASAP because I love getting stuff done today. Um, this is the process it's about to go through. I thought what you said before as well was really interesting and really spot on in terms of, um, being strict about your own value. So especially that pricing thing, and especially for women, because women underprice themselves, as we know, especially freelancers, and really uh, honing in on that so that you are being as strict as possible with your own values so that everything you do say yes to feels really aligned with where you're going. And yeah. also you're much less likely to burn out because you're doing the things that you want to do or the things that really work at the price that you want for the work that you're going to do. And you need to be motivated to do it, right? Mm. that's that's really important too yeah that's definitely been a been a big lesson that I've taken away actually from the pandemic from teaching and operating less in physical spaces and giving less talks is uh that all my prices were too low <laughs> yeah <laughs> you had the same <laughs> so I hope it will work when I come back out okay so another one of your priorities is your work with Amy's Place tell us about Amy's Place yeah, Amy's Place is a recovery house for young women that's um, set up by the Amy Winehouse Foundation. And it's where young women in recovery who've just come out of residential rehab and are not using anymore will have two years to live um, in this amazing place and have their own flats and access all this support so that then it's like a bridge back into independent, proper, really independent living. 
And I started working there as a volunteer a couple of, of four years ago or something. And now I'm a sort of retained uh, staff member every other week. And I, um, I, I, there are very few things that will stop me turning up for that. And they know, yeah, it, it's, it's my favorite thing that I do by far. Like if I had to wake up at 4am, I would do it. And it's impossible. I just, I just adore it. I, I absolutely love it. And the things that these women, that these young women manage to do and achieve and get through and the self-awareness and the self-compassion that they've, that they've committed to um, just continues to blow me away. And it just feels like an honor to be in their orbit. And I, yeah, I just absolutely adore it. In fact, if I'm on holiday doing something that you would think would be, you know, more fun than sitting in a ther- in a tiny therapy room. <laughs> um, I will miss it. And I've actually noticed myself booking things around my days at Amy's place. Um, even if, you know, I legitimately should take some time off or whatever. I just, I absolutely love it there. Um, it's my favorite thing. So how many young women are there in the program at any one time? I think there's like 16 or 18 at any one time, but now we've had cohorts go through. And so I'll like stay in touch afterwards with a lot of them and they'll be staying in, they'll be living in London. Um, and I'll just become a person in the world who they can call on if they want to, although it becomes more that they're, you know, teaching me through managing to do extraordinary things. Um, but yeah, I just, I, I, I know I shouldn't say this, but I love them. <laughs> I really do. And I love that place. And, um, it's, it's my favorite. And it also reminds me of working in services, which although was probably the hardest part of my job when I worked in substance misuse, um, I've never had an experience where a whole day feels like 10 minutes other than when I was working in alcohol and other drug services. And, um, everything it's it's just very real and important and I didn't feel important which is quite a nice feeling you know um whereas now with all this like influencery stuff and the instagrammy stuff it just feels like it's all about you and that's okay too and that has that has its place but I think it's important to kind of as my friend says zoom out um and that that perspective um is is extraordinary and also the fact that you're able to have connection with one person who's tells you their story and trusts you with it and has reached out to us for help and you know how difficult that is it just feels like a very um important relationship that I've never been able to find anywhere else nor would I really want to I think that's kind of where I belong in a lot of ways such an incredible program as well because of the the duration of it in mm. terms of support because so many people come out of residential um, uh, facilities and are thrown back into the real world pretty quickly with very little support offered to them. And so yeah. the rate of, um, of, uh, of, of going back or... yeah. This is very high from my understanding. So to offer a two-year program is really quite staggering. Yeah, it's very unique. And I think the foundation have done an extraordinary thing. They they just do such great work with young people. They have this thing called the resilience program too, where they go around to to, to schools and give um talks on substance misuse from people who are actually in recovery. And it's not that rubbish that I had when I was younger where the police would come in and tell you scary stories and it's like relatable and people who look like you and are thriving and it's just a really it's a really special place and you're absolutely right I used to work in criminal justice before um I went into consultancy and there was uh yeah there was a real problem with like that through the gate support um, where people would come out and, you know, despite all the fantastic work that was that was done while they were in prison with key workers and counsellors, et cetera, group work, um, there was not that structure in place to have them go back um, into a different life. 
And so that's, yeah, that's something extraordinary that the foundation does. And I just can't shut up about that place. I, I just think it's amazing. I feel so proud to be part of it. What are some of the myths around addiction, Sheru? I think people see addiction as a problem as opposed to a solution. I think that's the fundamental shift that needs to take place is that very often what is a problematic habit is a solution to something. Um, I think also people underestimate certain addictions, like a lot of the girls, you know, talk about their relationship with food and find that a lot more difficult on a day-to-day basis to deal with because abstinence is, is, is not an option. Um, I think a lot of the time people focus on what's wrong with addictive behaviors as opposed to thinking about what's right about them. How are they serving someone? Um, What job have they done for them? How did they come about with compassion? I think that people think that people in addiction are, they're so wrong in that they think that they're sort of like missing certain life, uh, you know, certain knowledge or wisdom or abilities when actually it's incredibly hard to be in addiction and it requires an extraordinary amount of resilience and resourcefulness a lot of the time, which if, if given the right um, support can make people come out um, what we call better than well, which is kind of like where you go into recovery feeling like you need to do some work, some sort of remedial work on yourself and deal with some stuff and some healing, et cetera. But having gone through the process of the exercises that you do and the connections that you make and the support you establish, you come out more equipped than the general population to deal with day-to-day stuff. Um, And I saw that happen during lockdown. You know, I saw it in my clients. So in the initial lockdown, the girls at Amy's and other people in, in addiction who I speak to uh, regularly and in addiction services from who I worked with before were reporting that people were doing really well, you know, because these were people who already knew the importance of routine, who already knew the importance of, of staying connected and support and mutual aid and daily inventory and gratitude and all the stuff that um, I was writing articles about uh, in mainstream magazines um, and professing to be an expert on. These are the people I was drawing from, these people who are stigmatized in society um, and often thought to be less capable. And that just uh, it actually really angers me, if I'm perfectly honest. Um, it really angers me. So, yeah, that's just those are just the ones off the top of my head. If I had time, I could just write an entire book on all the things that are people in addiction. Well, I, I actually have done that. I don't know. <laughs> That's exactly what I've done. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm absolutely in awe of them. And I feel like a large majority of the people I speak to who are in, who are in long, long-term recovery could have written my book in their sleep. Um, and so, I, yeah, I think it's appalling that people in recovery and indeed people in addiction are stigmatized or treated poorly at all, ever. Where actually there's a lot that can be learned from them. Yeah, and there's a huge pool of resources there, especially when it comes to personal development. I hate nothing more than an afternoon lost to Googling, particularly when it's for products or methods to support my wellbeing. So I'm thrilled that this episode of Priorities is sponsored by Healthy Living Store, the simple online one-stop shop for quality wellness products and expert advice. Their aim is to make living healthy simple, and they take a full 360 degree approach to health, incorporating nutrition, movement, mental health, and sleep to help support even those who are normally pretty skeptical of wellbeing. I'm a big fan of the fatigue fix tincture, and I'm also currently eyeing up a new ergonomic home office chair as well. Healthy Living Store are kindly offering any listener £10 off their first order with £35 minimum spend. You simply need to use the code LILY10. Check them out on www.healthylivingstore.co. That's healthylivingstore.co with the code L-I-L-Y-1-0. I guess a lot of people who go through those experiences also often go into this kind of work themselves. I know quite a few people who went through um, addiction who went on to study and become psychotherapists or work in those areas because there's such felt knowledge there. Yeah, there's nothing like an expert by experience. I mean, it is a different role, and uh, and for that, I think it is important. But yeah, more and more um, drug and alcohol ser- um, sorry, actually, alcohol and other drug services are uh, are trying to change that. Myself um, are uh, are becoming peer mentors and going through the the process of 
learning about the helping relationship, et cetera, because mutual aid and things like AA, example, for example, is a, is a totally different thing where power dynamics and hierarchical structures and things that they don't come into it in the same way as when you're responsible for someone, you're assessing risk, um, you're holding space for them, if you will. Um, these are all things that, yeah, but, but I think you, you can never learn what it feels like to be in the position that your client is in. And that is an extraordinary um, asset that I'm just really glad that the expert by experience is being respected. Mm. What do you think of our government's response to alcohol and drug? I mean, that's for a different soapbox. But yeah, in general, awful. The fact that funding gets cut, the fact that there are so many initiatives that kind of feel like a slapdash um, approach to things. The fact that I do think that for the most part in this country, compared to say countries like Portugal, um, we're looking at addiction as a problem, as a continued problem to solve, as opposed to a solution to all sorts of systemic and social issues um, that are far more ingrained and more complicated to deal with. Um, but yeah, I find it absolutely infuriating. You know, I think anyone who works in addiction on the ground will tell you that the war on drugs is a, a war on, as Gabo Mate says, I believe it's him, it's a war on drug addicts. And so therefore a war on the most vulnerable people. Um, yeah, it's infuriating. I'd, I'd really like to have a big part in changing that. And also, you know, in terms of things like obesity too, you know, the obesity strategy that came out last last year was insulting and patronizing. And if I could swear, I would swear a lot right now about it. It really is horseshit, like absolute horseshit and clearly written by people who don't understand. And it, it suggests that knowing about calories and oh just nothing it doesn't take into consideration the socioeconomic aspects it doesn't take into consideration the fact that food is so often used as comfort that additional weight is often the byproduct of binge eating disorders that have come as a direct result of dieting and restricting um and that that just so happens that that's what happens to some people's bodies there will be other people who who have the same disordered eating patterns who are wildly underweight and there is no difference we're talking about disordered eating i mean there's just yeah i can get on my soapbox about this but i think the government have got it wildly wrong it does often feel like who are the experts that they're using for these things because they don't seem like the people on the ground who truly understand this stuff. Quite, quite. Okay, we could go on this slightly. I mean, I could rant all day about government. Move on to your third, which is your mum, which I love. Your yeah. mum, her health and her happiness. Is she yeah. in London as well? In London. Mm-hmm. My mum lives in Surrey, actually, uh, where I grew up. And my mum, yeah, she's just wicked. She's just, I shouldn't say that because people who don't use the word wicked will think I mean she's evil. Um, she's she's brilliant. My mum is a great example of someone who's as strong as she is kind and she's honest and she really gets straight to the point and her advice is extraordinary. She, she doesn't She doesn't judge me but she says exactly what the hell she wants. I just feel really lucky. And a few years ago, my mum got ill. And at the time I thought I was okay. And I was kind of going through the motions of being okay, thinking that I would, it would be helpful to her if I didn't make myself, you know, if she didn't have to take care of me and how I felt about it. But then I just noticed myself breaking down randomly and had to really sit with the fact that she's unbelievably important to me so I can't imagine anything that anyone could need from me that would make me put it ahead of anything my mum would need from me ever um not that she ever needs anything maybe that's partly why <laughs> but yeah I just feel wildly lucky to have the mum that I have um and you know she's like a she's always been like a proper feminist and I don't think I ever gave her credit for that um or really understood the extent to which she was um and she's just always focused on the things that I realise now I'm focusing on. And I wish I'd, I know it's such a cliche, but I wish I'd listened to her sooner about a lot of stuff, like about knowing your worth and knowing your value and not seeing any difference between what you 
should get and what a man should get. And yeah, just not placing importance on doing stuff to please other people. And she never has. So she's she's been a wonderful example in that sense. She sounds great. She's wicked. And she's also very um almost rude. But when you know her, not rude is the wrong word, but she will just say it. She'll just say whatever the hell she likes. And when you know her, you realize it's like her superpower and it's hilarious. And she'll be, and she'll come straight back. If you tell her like, hey, that was rude. Mum will go, okay, cool. Sorry about that. Yeah, absolutely. I totally understand why you thought that. And then it'll be over. Whereas I'm like this anxious, ruminating kind of, oh, did I upset them? Did I not? And mum will be like, it's over. Remember we had that conversation and it was over and they're fine. So we're moving on now. Um, so yeah, she's, she's goals. She's also very like stylish and yeah, I just, I got a lot of time for that lady. (laughs) (laughs) Was she, so when you got into your work, was she an inspiration? Sounds like quite an inspiring mother slash. Yeah. I think because I, um, whether with, I think what I'm saying with the kindness method, because a lot of people think, well, if I'm kind to myself, am I just doing whatever the hell I want all day? And how does that help me to change my habits? My mum is as strong as she is kind and um, has, has made me realise that kindness is often about making the same, making a decision today, you'll be happy you made tomorrow. And has helped me move away from that quick fix mentality and helped me to reframe discomfort as often a part of the process. Um, and yeah, I mean, she is, as I say in the second book, she is proof that kindness and strength absolutely go hand in hand. So yeah, absolutely. She, she inspires me. From something that very much inspires you, someone to something that doesn't. So what's an area that you do not prioritize at all that you couldn't care less about? Being an influencer. (laughs) I mean, I really can't, I don't want to be aspirational. Do you know what? I keep saying that, but I don't think I am anyway. So, (laughs) so problem solved. It's like a couple, I'm, I'm 36 and a couple of years ago, I said to my friend Grace, I don't think I want to be a young bride. And she was like, I think that ship sailed, mate. (laughs) I don't think that's your choice. Um, but yeah, I don't like the idea of someone feeling bad about themselves as a result of me indulging myself and showing them what's great about my life and um, giving them, you know, we've all heard it before, but like this highlights reel or a snapshot where I'm, you know, on a beach or no, thank you. I just don't want people, I don't mind inspiring. I think that's a great way of using social media. But aspiring people, aspiring to be like me, aside from the fact that I wouldn't, I don't like the dynamic of it. um, I also, I don't want that pressure on myself at all. I want to be able to just fail and (laughs) deviate from what I said and change my mind. I think this responsibility that people have to their public um, can become harmful to themselves as well down the line. I don't see how we're going to have influences in their seventies. Like what, where is this going? Mm. If, if you're basing your business model on making other people feel less than in order to be more like you, um, I just don't see where this is going. We're going to have like old, old lady influences, like being like, here's me. And like the coolest, um, care home in the world. Like with my, I just don't see it with my frappuccino or whatever. So yeah, I don't want to, I don't want to be aspirational at all. And I could care less about being an influencer. If, if I can put something out and some of it's on Instagram and it helps people or it makes people laugh or it makes people think that we're all the same then, or it's me saying, Hey, I'm proud of myself for having achieved this thing. And other people want to celebrate with me. Fantastic. But I don't want to be someone who's saying, look at my cool life. Don't you wish you were like me? Mm. Um, No, thank you. (laughs) It would also, I guess, massively get in the way with the value of your work and the approach with your work, if that was the kind of approach you had. Yeah, totally. But you know what? The interesting thing is, even as I say this, it feels so indulgent because no one's asking me to be that way. I think I just have this, I had this real... 
um, block around joining Instagram in the first place because that's all I that's all I associated it with. But then I, you know, I look at accounts like yours. I look at accounts like other people, you know, other people's who I I really admire, and I think, wow, you've used this medium to get across um, clear and useful information. And if I can do that, then fantastic. But sometimes I do get angry because I have so many conversations, especially with women who are comparing themselves to people on social media. And sometimes they'll describe them as people who are talking about self-esteem or personal development. And I'll kind of think, Oh, there's a Venn diagram on which me and that person exist together. And I really get kind of defensive about being confused about what I'm trying to do. Um, but as I say, that issue hasn't actually come up. So it's pretty arrogant of me to think that it might. <laughs> no one's trying to be like me anyway. <laughs> um, anyway, well, you're so yeah, I would, I would just never want that. There's no sure. there. Yeah, you have that um, a lot with sort of yoga or um, yoga or self-development accounts where it's like a lot of pictures of whoever that person is in a bikini. And that's the extent of their content. So it's sort of self-love, but most of it is just pictures of them in a bikini. Yeah. And I, those always worry me slightly. Of course. But they get your followers and that gets the bills paid. In a bikini, then, you know, that's your right. Absolutely. But I definitely, it grates on me slightly. I just kind of wish people would say, hey, look, here's me in a bikini. I look great. And I want you to see it. That's so human, you know. I've had I've had times when someone's taken a beautiful photo of me, and I'll I'll, I'll actually find myself thinking, hmm, should I go find a quote? Should I re- reverse engineer this? Should I make this like, oh, I look happy, and I want to help people to be happy. So maybe I'm going to say that this is, ha-. and then I kind of think, sure, just put it up and say, don't I look nice? I want you to see because it's kind of, you know I just want you to see how nice I look, <laughs> and. I just feel like there's a there's a space for that. But then I guess I have the luxury of being a little bit older than most of the people who I'm talking about now too. And who knows what, what I would have done if I had social media 15 years ago and I looked like that. But I feel like I'm sort of letting down the version of me, the, the body that I lived in for 90% of my life by now just like uh, turning on a dime and being like, oh, I wrote a book and now I tell people what to do with their lives. And so look at me smiling and then giving you a quote. Um, that I obviously Googled to be able to put up this picture. Just say you want to put up the picture. We all like looking nice. Um, so, yeah. But again, do you know what? Even, even as I'm saying this, uh, the number of things that I've been a hypocrite about, <laughs> in three years' time, we might be talking and be like, hey, Shrew, I noticed you were doing that hashtag ad and you were in a bikini and uh, you were intentionally trying to make me feel shitty about myself. <laughs> so let's hope not. But um yeah, hopefully my... Uh, there was a meme going around a little while ago, which was like, it's just a mirror selfie. There's no need to bring Gandhi into it. <laughs> it's so true. It's like, just say you like how you look. And me too, I like how I look. I'm very proud. Um, but it's natural, you know. And when you see other people doing anything, you normalise it. And ultimately it's harmless, you know, on a, on a, zo- a zoomed-in level. It's harmless. It's when you get these huge platforms, you get people, young women coming and talking to you and saying, I feel like I'm less than, I feel like I whatever. I feel like, why am I doing a job that requires me to sit at a computer? Why am I not doing a job that requires me to get in a helicopter? Um, <laughs> you know, it's just like, because no one does, babe. The person in the helicopter, it's not their helicopter. <laughs> <laughs> that shoot, right? Yeah, exactly. Okay, so let's talk um, about the moment in your life where your priorities shifted very quickly. When was that? I volunteered a couple of years ago in Samos at a refugee camp. And the reason I said that quickly is because I I hate kind of like making it sound like it's about me and I'm a great person or whatever. But I realized there that before that, whenever, whenever I thought about making money, I felt guilty. I felt guilty for charging a lot because I knew that all I, uh, I guess what I knew that I wanted to get more Ubers and eat more lunches out and drink more cocktails. And that's fine. But there was something in me that kind of, that didn't push me because there's no maximum amount of that you could do. There was no sort of tangible thing that I could do that was, that it was, that was exciting me. Um, and then I went to Samos and I realized that how much I can help if I could work for free. And so from that point on, I didn't look back. I knocked up my prices. I knew exactly what I was making money for. I was making money so that I could work for free and go do something that I thought was really, really important. And I also realized when I came back, I remember being on the plane and I realized that 
from this point on, whatever happens in my life, the worst day I can possibly imagine is still the best day that so many people can imagine. And I couldn't believe what I saw. And I just stopped caring about a lot of stuff that was weighing me down. And I started thinking that I knew why I wanted to earn good money. Um, don't get me wrong. I also want to earn it because I do like cocktails and I do want a big house. And I do like not, you know, if someone says, hey, want to go to Barcelona? I want to say, yeah, without looking at my bank account. That's all dreams too. But that thing I needed to say, this is my price. And I, I know where I'm putting that money. And I don't, you know, if you don't want to pay it, someone else will. And it's really worked. Um, it just changed my perspective entirely on money in general and how much more helpful I could be for free if I asked for what I was worth. Mm. What I'm hearing is that it kind of cemented your purpose. Yeah. Yeah. I want to work. Yeah. My purpose is to be able to work for free, I guess. Um, I work in quite a similar way. A lot of my a lot of my work is with uh, with refugees. I teach teenage ref- refugees meditation and mindfulness and uh, working with children with special needs and so on, lots of various charity projects. And I, and I really feel the same way when I'm, especially when I'm working with very big companies who say, oh, I don't have budget. That's always the times where I'll say, I don't have enough or they don't have enough budget for that. I'll always say no, because me doing that enables me to also do these free projects. And that's quite... Yeah. That's amazing. That's really cool. I want to talk to you about that, please, after. After. Um, okay. Yeah. Finally, what's an area you'd like to improve on? What do you want to prioritize more? I really want to get over this idea that I have to be have everything ready and perfect before I launch something online so that I can help more people and talk to more people on a day-to-day basis as opposed to just doing private coaching. Because I if I tell you the number of incredibly knowledgeable people who've done amazing online courses and stuff. And they will always just say, just start, just do it. Just put it out there, start, you'll learn as you go. But the idea of letting people down or feeling overwhelmed just keeps stopping me. Um, And I'm starting to feel regretful when I don't do it. And regret is not something that I've really experienced before. Um, And so I'm really trying to, to get on top of that kind of like, it's not going to be perfect. You're never going to get it perfect. It'll take you years to do the things that you think you're going to be able to do and then launch it. And then what if no one buys it anyway? Um, so yeah, I think it's that kind of just get going and the rest and the problems will present themselves and the problems that you think, just like everything else, the problems you think you're going to have, you probably won't. And the problems you can't even imagine are going to present themselves. And my whole thing is believing in your capacity to spontaneously deal with things, um, which I totally do. So I think there is an element of, of like, come on, true, just put it out there, do it. You know, you can handle, handle whatever comes up bite the bullet um excuse me so that's what I'd like to work on just get on with it it's never going to be perfect and how do you work on that by doing something right now today (laughs) (laughs) I love that you clearly know the right questions to ask me as well um yeah by just getting on with it and kind of remembering that people with far less opportunity to know that it's going to be okay have managed to do far more than I have you know I do have a bunch of people from the books and everything who already know that my stuff works who know where I'm coming from who aren't going to misunderstand me there are all these hurdles that I won't personally have to jump over and so I want to use that privilege and get on with it um yeah even talking to you about it now sometimes you just need other people to ask you the questions that you that you ask people every day. Like I help people launch their businesses all the time. It's a huge part of my job. And I think sometimes as practitioners, you kind of have to realize that maybe you're hiding behind that Um, and that doing your own thing and getting in front of the camera and all that stuff is, um, is hard. And letting go of that fear of, of failure, of rejection and of things not being perfect, of accepting that things will never be perfect. Yeah, I think it's the perfectionism bit, isn't it? And it's that thing, like even after I wrote the books, every time I'd, I'd have a new idea or read about a new piece of research, I was like, oh, God, that would have been great. I really wish I'd put that in. Um, but, yeah, 
they won't be perfect. And I've been very, very lucky. I'm not saying I haven't worked hard or that I don't have something good to hand over, but I've also been very lucky in that I'm pretty certain that when I do do an online course or whatever that ends up looking like, it will do well. So um, yeah, kind of get on with it. Yeah. Okay. So May, it's beginning of May. So when can we expect your online course? I love this. I love this. Well, my the kindness method is being re-released at the end of May. So I was thinking sort of July, I want to do something around binge eating and weight management as a result of binge eating. Because I can't help but notice people have started, uh, I don't know how to say this, but people who are doing kind of problematic stuff and only now realizing that it's kind of problematic are coming to me and using my approach with The Last Diet to make what they're doing more legit. I'll just say it. And there've been a handful of people who've copied what I've done and it's made me very upset. Some of those people have pretty big platforms and I've seen it happen and it's upset me. So I want to do something around binge eating and weight management for people who are not happy with their weight as a direct result of all the damage that dieting has done with all or nothing thinking, et cetera. And I want to do a product for people who um, want to manage how they drink as opposed to stop drinking altogether. So I've said it now. It's in the world. I'm. It's coming out this summer. I love this conversation. I'm very grateful to you for the re-release of the kindness method, which has this amazing quote on it, which compares you to Brene Brown from. Uh, yeah. <laughs> oh my God! 27th of May. It says Britain's answer to Brene Brown. And sometimes I have to sit and actually just look at that quote and try to make my brain. It's like looking at the sun or something, you know, and you're just like, how am I supposed to internalize this? I still can't get over the fact that I go into Waterstones and my book's looking back at me. I would like walk past it because I can't absorb the fact that this has happened to me. And I think I have to just get on board with the fact that I'm going to need to start moving forward before I absorb stuff because it's all too much to absorb. And maybe I don't really want to absorb it. Um, you know, because maybe I have things around what it means to absorb that and the sort of person it makes you walking around all day being like, look at me in a bookshop. I don't know. <laughs> it's all this, it's, it's very difficult unlearning all that stuff from childhood where, you know, the worst insult you could be told as a girl when you were younger, she loves herself. And now it's what I get paid to help people do, and it's what I pay other people to help me do. Um, so a lot of it's unlearning. Repatterning. Yes, quite. Oh, it's been so lovely talking to you, Shrew. Such an honour. You too. You Hello. too, really. This has been a lovely conversation. I can't wait to try your course in July. Um, Thank you very much. Thank you for asking me the questions that make me, um, yeah, have made me say that aloud. So I guess it's happening now. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Take care. Have a beautiful day. You too. Thank you. If you enjoyed this episode of Priorities, I'd really appreciate it if you could make it your priority today to hit subscribe and also rate and review as this helps other people find it. Need a little incentive? Every month I offer one free six-month membership to my online studio, Mindful Moment. All you have to do is hit subscribe, rate, review the podcast, and then email a screenshot of your review to podcast at lilysilverton.com for a chance to win. Thank you so much for listening. Take care.